Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. Today, we discuss PED science that you should know. So we talk about some of the studies behind steroids and growth hormone. And if you guys have any questions about this stuff, then comment below. We'll tackle that stuff on the next program. If you learned something today, then show us some love. Hit the like button and be sure to subscribe so you can keep up to date. We have a lot of bodybuilding education here. And the more you learn, the better you can be at bodybuilding. Thank you to our generous sponsor, truenutrition.com, for supporting everything we do. All right, guys, let's get to Scott. Well, this is the kind of the, it's a three-part 100th episode, so it's the 102nd technically, but this is, uh, I kind of waited to the end. I wanted to get through the, what I think is sort of the more important stuff, you know, it's training, nutrition. This is the stuff that everyone seems to love because it's thought of sort of as a, uh, a magic bullet. Part of what I'm going to talk about mainly is just, and there are a couple specific studies that I'm going to go through. And some also some general information on bodybuilding PEDs, kind of with the idea to to at least make people aware of how much variability there is there in terms of responses to drugs in various ways. So some of this is sort of a genetics-based thing. And some of the things we don't really know um, that people seem to sort of presume right off the bat related to, to gear and growth hormone, those are just the two that I've decided to pick because we only have so much time. So with that, let's just, we'll just dig in. We'll, um, it will be self-explanatory as we move along. All right. Sounds good, man. We're going to that next slide. Yep. Please. All right. Let's see. All right. And then where do you want us? Oh, off to the right. Can we, can we be on top of one another or does it have to be? It's side by side. Okay. That's yeah. okay. Um, That'll be fine for now for the, so this is the classic sort of quote unquote classic study. People refer to it all the time, rightfully so, because it's a great study. Shalender Bosn did this study. I believe they're at Wash U at the time. Now, that's how you know it's authentic when the dogs bark. Um, it was done in 96. So it was 25 years ago now. And they did the type of thing. It's sort of, there would be, it would be a hard press to rationalize repeating this kind of study. Because what they did was gave super, super physiological levels, amounts of, of testosterone enanthate in this case, to college-age males who were Ugonadal, no prior mental history of psychological disorders or what have you. They screened them pretty well. Um, the values are published in this paper from 1996. If anyone wants these references, no one's ever asked, but if everyone wants them, I can provide them. Okay. Um, this one's pretty easy to find. It pops right up. Uh, they got their their test levels to about the 3,000 nanograms per deciliter nice, level nice. with the 600. Yeah, so it's you know pretty high. That's about what you might expect on average. So that's where, that's where this is one source where people kind of come up with that, that sort of rule of thumb um, as far as what 100 milligrams of testosterone would equal to. So mm -hmm. maybe 100 milligrams being about the value of 500 nanograms per deciliter. So you go to six times that and you're at about 6,000 or 3,000. So six times 500 is 3,000. So here's what they did. Four groups, and this was a really well-done study. They did um, two groups that didn't train and two groups that did for 10 weeks. And within the non-training group, they had a pure placebo. So they injected them with something that was inert, and then they gave them the 600 milligrams per week. <laughs> And then the training groups, they had a placebo-trained group that did the actual regular training. So they had the natty training group, and then they had the super-supplemented training group. And um, 
so what they found basically, and this is where people will say that with you can grow with gear just as well as just training, at least over ten weeks. What I have there in the in the middle of the slide are the bar graphs showing the changes in fat-free mass across these four groups. Hmm. So look at the very bottom of that, you'll see the first two are the no exercise groups, the leftmost being placebo, and then the next over being testosterone. So if you look up to the top there at fat-free mass, you'll see that, as you would expect, placebo, no exercise, you didn't see a change in fat-free mass. They just didn't do anything. There's no essential intervention other than coming in to get a, a fake shot. Yeah. But the group that was given testosterone increased their fat-free mass by, it was, I think it was two and a half, um, maybe, actually, I think it was 3.1 or 3.2 kilos 3.2 over those kilos. 10 weeks. No training. So you're telling so that's me 3.2 kilos. That's like you do over... Seven pounds. Okay, yeah. seven pounds. Roughly seven pounds. Thinking seven pounds of lean tissue sitting on a couch, mass, yeah. doing nothing, yep. taking a test shot test. They, they use underwater weighing with this, so it's not. This was '96, remember? So people weren't using DEXA at that point. Ah. Um, some were, were, most certainly. There was, they were doing DEXA, for instance, University of Georgia, where I was, because we, I was, you know, I go, I, I went to that lab, and we used that actually in a lab that I took in grad school. So in this case, they just use that. So there's some issues there potentially with water. When we'll go into the body composition thing. Um, you actually, it's possible may have actually underestimated that if there was a bunch of water retention, huh. but substantial. Wow, um, yeah. yeah. And if you look, then keep reading from left to right in that top set of bar plots, there's a placebo group that trained and they had a significant increase in fat free mass as well. You can see numerically there's a little bit less actually, but statistically it was not. So there's a lot of variability there, of course, substantial variability. But as you would have expected, you look to the far right, so the upper right corner there, you see the greatest impact on fat-free mass came from those who both trained and got the, uh, the um, 600 milligrams of testosterone update per week. So basically, we've got doing nothing, no drugs, no change. Yeah. In terms of fat-free mass, you're getting an increase with the just the drugs or just the training, and you're getting close to double that if you combine the two training with drugs. So the next two uh, set of bar plots, bar plots are triceps cross-sectional area and quadriceps cross-sectional area. Same kind of pattern. Interestingly enough, there was an increase in triceps size in the drug-only group with no training that they didn't see in the exercise group. So their arms didn't really grow there. And not almost the same increase in tricep size in uh, when they trained and were given the testosterone. Hmm. So that's a little bit interesting pattern. The pattern you see with quads, with the legs, matches very well what you saw overall with, with um, a fat-free mass. So training with without drugs and drugs only, about the same increase in quad size and about double that if you combine. So we're seeing this sort of pattern. You're getting something with the drugs only, you're getting some of the training only over 10 weeks, and you're getting about double that when you combine the two. The bottom two are strength during a squat and a bench press. Same pattern there. So there actually was a strength gain from chest to gear with no training. Yeah. So here's the interesting thing. They did mood and behavior analysis. Huh, okay. There was no change in mood. Um, none of the things, 
from those psychometric tests, there were no changes brought on by the gear. Nothing was changing across, really across any of the groups. So they weren't getting angry. One aspect of the test that they used was sort of an anger analysis to sort of test out the roid rage component. Yeah. The thing that I don't see mentioned very often, which I think many, this is sort of a, let's combine what happens in the trenches with what the research says. What happens, can you imagine what happens if you take a, a college-age male, these were eugonadals, so they had normal testosterone levels, and you start giving them 600 milligrams of testosterone a week. How are they going to feel? Going to feel horny like, as shit. Yeah, exactly. That's are one, one thing. Yeah. Yes, they're going to know what they're on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to know what they're on. So, I mean, who knows? Like some, it's it's possible some of those, and I don't think they they didn't put a you know an ankle bracelet on them to an anklet to to track them all the time. Make sure they didn't go in the gym. But I wonder, thinking now specifically of those strength gains, if some of that is a placebo effect potentially. Because it's, it would have been pretty clear to them. They know from the weight gain, probably. Mm-hmm. That's a substantial weight gain. There was no change in body fat percentage. I don't know if they had the actual weight, but they had, the, obviously, the fat-free mass that they, that they reported. So it's hard to know. The nice thing, of course, no impact on those negative psychometric measurements of anger and, and general behavior. But they didn't have a sex drive. I don't believe there was a component of sex drive, a libido in their psychometric analysis either. So that's something to consider. So if you can slide us to the left a smidge so we can see the text there. Mm-hmm. So over the short term, AAS, anabolic androgen steroids, just testosterone in this case, was a pro- roughly equivalent to natty train, basically. It's kind of the bottom line is you're getting about the same in this particular study, in this context with these individuals. Um, so here's the thing. Let's think about like how well can we extend these? And this is a this is an external validity concept. That's true over ten weeks. What happens if we looked over the next two years? If there were no training and the same amount of testosterone, that would be a continuous simu- similar stimulus for muscle growth, which obviously that we're getting demonstration of here in this study. But it wouldn't be changing. Would they continue to grow past those ten those ten weeks? Will they continue to gain strength in that way? You can gain, you can double your strength in two years of training. I doubt they would have doubled their strength just staying on that testosterone dose. Hmm. Because guess what? There would have been no progression in the stimulus. That's what we do with training. And of course, food, et cetera. There's a progressive overload component there. So for, for folks to take this study, and this is what is sort of implied and suggested, and say that testosterone or gear is equivalent to training generally speaking over the long haul over the course of many years is 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 doesn't match with what can be concluded and inferred from this particular study because this was a 10-week study Mm. this was not a one-year or two-year study where they had them training eventually the natty training would have superseded what happened in those 10 weeks which i imagine were plateauing about the time at the end of the study 10 weeks is a nice Nice time to, you know, give the drug an effect to accrue that fat-free mass, et cetera. The strength gains, you know, we'll talk about placebo here at the very end, of course, one of my favorite topics. But the strength gains, I imagine those would have also plateaued. The fat, if those are equi- those come from fat-free mass or muscle mass, that makes sense they'd be a little bit stronger. 
But we know, we, I've talked about this, not in this three-part series, but previously, I've talked about studies that demonstrate specificity of training where they actually have, and this was, uh, folks might remember, this was maybe, this is the last year, I think, did a study where they trained with the squat and showed like, I think, a 60% increase in squat strength and about a 10% increase in quad cross-sectional area. Mm-hmm. The strength gains on a leg press, which is a similar movement that's a compound pressing movement you're using the hips and the knees ankles you're using you know all the muscles of the lower extremity to drive the weight the strength gains were cut in half not nearly it wasn't exactly a squat but similar and then when they took those individuals who had bigger muscles 10 percent greater quad cross-sectional area mm-hmm. and tested them on a knee extension there was no increase in size and okay. strength excuse me i remember no that. increase in strength yeah, I remember that, right? That was crazy, so, man. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of wacky. So more muscle doesn't necessarily mean more strength. In this case, one would presume that the muscle was contributing to the strength, and it does make sense. These aren't gigantic changes in, um, in strength or size yet. Um, but uh, it's very possible that there's still a placebo effect at play there, in my mind at least, given what I know would happen to someone who who's – all of a sudden given six times normal testosterone levels. And even if it's not affecting them in the same way as it would initially, like after that first shot, you know, they're, you know, they're out on the prowl, they're, they're going to every nightclub, you know, within walking distance. Um, and that may, have, that may have faded over the course of those 10 weeks. They still know what they're getting if they figured it out because they've got um, something in their sex drive libido that's changed substantially, which is very, very likely. So that's sort of a weakness there. So, so the obvious uh, take home too here is that the gains from both training and the gear were were basically double of what you got from either of those alone, hmm. and that makes sense. We know that. That's why people use use steroids. Um, took a while to figure that out. This study was important because the eight, actually the American College of Sports Medicine is sort of is is notorious had a notorious. A review statement, a position stand on anabolic steroids in sport where they suggested based on the literature that was available at the time that there was no impact on strength or muscle mass. Mm-hmm. That was the basic conclusion until eventually enough information came forth to demonstrate that. Some of those studies, they weren't well controlled. They're just anecdotal, cross-sectional, that sort of thing. So anyway, we obviously know this is a good study to demonstrate that gear does amplify the, the gains that you'll get both in muscle mass and strength from weight training. Mm-hmm. So this is the Bosman study. So people, um, people say the gear works alone. Yes. On the short term, it's not a long-term study. So mm-hmm. it's very informative standard classic study. Definitely worth knowing. This is the one I figure people will be interested in. So let's hit the next slide here. All right. We're going to dig in a little bit more. So you can put us on the there. Perfect. Excellent. Right, cool. So you'll see if you go and look online, you'll see the half-life charts for all the gear, right? You can see Matt, Matt, the lists are everywhere. They're copied and pasted, copied and pasted. Rarely will you find a, uh, a citation or a source for that information, but it's just regurgitated because you can Google it and find it there. Well, here's the thing. Aside from going into each one of those drugs and, and trying to look at the information sources for that, we do know, and it's been a theme for the th- things that I talk about here, is that there's tons of variability mm-hmm. across individuals. So that's a huge point. 
But first and foremost, actually, there's tons of variability. There can be substantial variability, at least, depending on how the drug is formulated and where the drug is administered and how it's administered. That's right. Dude, this, I got to tell you, because we, for, for guys who have watched or, in, or listened to the show for a long time, this is something we talked about maybe a couple years ago now. And this, for mm-hmm. me, was a game changer. This topic right here was a game changer in understanding the way these drugs work. So this, yeah, this one, um, the Minto et al. study, which is in the upper left there, was pretty cool. So they used nandrolone esters, the phenylpropionate, so NPP, and then decanoate. And there's a, a bunch of, there's four plots there. There's 100 milligrams per injection each time. So we'll look at the, the top one is NPP, and that was ejected into the glute. In this case, that was a four mil injection. So that's not so much, you wouldn't typically find a 25 milligrams per mil. You know, I don't think I've ever seen, you know, heard anyone talking about that yeah. kind of an injection, but they did that. Um, interesting enough, that would have been nice if they had a one mil that was also 100 milligrams per mil yeah. to compare, but they didn't do that. So we'll kind of like, the one thing you can see there, obviously, is still 100 milligrams, but you're getting a much higher peak. And in this case, phenylpropionate is supposed to be pretty fast. It's elevated a good bit, even five days afterwards. Hmm. So you can, that's sort of interesting. So, you know, this idea of a half-life um, is something that can be calculated, but the half-life doesn't necessarily tell you um, how the curve of blood levels looks. In this case... Um, you see it drops down there after about day four pretty pretty quickly, but it's pretty elevated for, for four days. Now that's so the, if you inject... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's the phenylpropionate. The that's, top one is the phenylpropionate, but it's, okay. but it's basically a 25 milligrams per mil formulation Yeah, because they so, gave a four mil injection. Okay, because I, I just wanted to say too, because I, I know one of the things we had had looking at these charts and graphs on the previous episode... Uh, since there, you know, a lot of our audience still is audio listeners. I just want right. to say, looking at that line, I'm seeing like a really sharp peak in that. That would be in the first day, right, Scott? And it looks like it mm-hmm. reaches its peak right when it hits the one. So that would be what 24 hours after the shot, yeah. and then mm-hmm. from there, it's a gradual drop off. And then by day five, it's it's still there. I mean, it's it's coming down at like maybe a 45 degree angle. But there still is, I mean, it's still there five days later. The, the peak is, is over twice as high wow. as for the Nandrolone Decanoate, any of the formulations that they compared. Yeah. Yeah. So it's substantial. Um, the other thing to consider, too, this is 100 milligrams of the gear, of the substance. The phenylpropionate has, the, the, the phenylpropionic acid is much smaller, so it contributes less to the total weight of the molecule. Okay. Nandrolone phenylpropionate, because the decanoate's a longer, larger molecule, 10 carbons long, I believe, as the name suggests. So a larger percentage of that 100 milligrams is actually nandrolone. More hormone, less ester weight per one. So your 100 milligrams is going to be a percentage of the ester, whatever that is for each different drug and then a percentage of the actual drug. So right. it's, it's going to be a lot higher there. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's part of why what's going on there. And well, I guess I'll just, I can transition to this cause this is a question. This came up on that, um, the podcast with Dave where you guys covered Anadrol. I think that was the, 
it's in the the topic there. Yeah. So generally, there's several studies that have demonstrated this. It's seen in animals. It's the generally su- supported and understood way in which um, the basic understanding of pharmacokinetics, what the body does to the drug or what happens to the drug in the body um, as, it's, as it's making its way um, through its path before and on the way to interacting, in this case, with the antigen receptor, is, um, is that the main reason why we have these dis- different esters and the main reason why they are, have different half-lives is because the residence of the drug in the body, at least as the active drug, not a metabolite that's been broken down, but the residence of nandrolone or testosterone or whatever anabolic steroid is, has an esterified fatty acid on it is dependent upon the length of that fatty acid, the size of that molecule, which basically is anchors it to it's a, it's lipophilic, so it's like a fatty acid anchor that keeps it in the depot in the carrier oil, which is the next thing we'll talk about in a bit, and also would keep it anchored to any fatty any fatty substances that it might come in contact with. So, in large part, what you have if you have a uh, a long esterified fatty acid like a decanoate, that is anchoring that nandrolone in this case to the, the, the depot, which has been, been injected for a longer period of time. So it leaves there very, very, very slowly. The phenopropionate or an acetate or a propionate, those are smaller molecules. And so, the, so they don't hold as tightly. They're not as lipophilically attracted to the depot site, and they come out much more rapidly. From there, there are esterases in the blood and in the liver. We'll talk about that. And those cleave that esterified fatty acid, the enanthate, the cypionate, the decanoate, whatever it might be, really relatively rapidly in a matter of hours. Hmm. So the half-life is dependent upon the length of the ester. Once it, once it gets out into the blood and can interact with an esterase that breaks down the ester, you've got a free hormone molecule that can go about its business. It might be bound up, bound up by SHBG, will bind to an androgen receptor, some things we'll talk about in the next slide. But it's the length of that, so it's a very slow process to be released from the depot. And then once it's out, the body can metabolize it with those esterases, and it can go about being 5-alpha reduced if that's possible, or aromatized if that's possible. So that's the basic understanding, and that's why the drugs, that's why there's so many different esters, because hmm. that changes that very major component, the half-life, essentially, of the drug. So... So here's the interesting thing, too. So look at these bottom, and the folks at home can't see these, but what they did was a, they did several different injections. Let's kind of take a look at two of them. The two that are one milliliter injections. So that's 100 milligrams per mil, one mil injections. And if you look at the area under the curve, which would be, if the folks can see this, Mm -hmm. this is the top um, squares Sorry, the, the sorry, the, the top circles are for the glute, and it's so small on my screen. Hopefully, you can see the folks can see this better at home. Um, the top circles for the glute show a substantially larger area under the curve. So, same injection, one mil, hundred milligrams, and you're getting a substantially larger area under the curve in terms of the nandrolone compared to if that same injection were put in the deltoid. So something, something about the way in which that uh, hormone has residence in the glute muscle 
versus the delt muscle, which is probably a function of activity mm. of those muscles during the day, um, changes the half-life. Okay. My, my guess is most people, and these are with people who aren't training and what have you, training is probably going to change this. Most people are picking things up. They're moving their arms around. Their delts are constantly being used. Yeah. You might use your glute, you know, if it's like, if you get a really bad glute shot, it would, it might bother you for a long time. But if you get a bad delt shot, it's bothering you all the time, like constantly. Mm -hmm. So it hurts. So you're, you're using that one a good bit more. So that Nandrolone, um, Decanoate in this case is going to leave more rapidly and then be attacked or, uh, connect with those esterases be broken down so you're going to have a more rapid metabolism because it's not staying in that depot as long so that's going to change that area of the curve so where you put the injection makes a huge difference a substantial difference here in the case and this is even for deca which is supposed to be a nice slow steady release so that's one thing that changes how much drug is essentially delivered that area of the curve dramatically and that's just the same drug, same formulation, everything's the same, just changing the muscle makes a big difference. So for people who are concerned with having some problems in some way, shape, or form, um, or notice differences across their week, if they're rotating injection sites, they could be also rotating the half-life and the area under the curve, and essentially the effectiveness of their drug, not that it's a bad idea to rotate injection sites, if you put everything in the same spot, you could run into problems too, but variability in the drug's actions is going to come from varying the injection site as well. So that's worth knowing. That's interesting. So, yeah, it is. I think so. The next slide, slide down shows, um, in this case, they used 100, uh, sorry, 1,000 milligrams of testosterone undecanoate, which is a really long acting. You can see the days go out there to, they're literally in, in weeks, 7, 14, 21 days. And they use different um, carrier oils. They use a tea seed oil for one one case, and they used castor oil in the other. So the tea seed oil is the upper uh, plot, and you see about it's about a, it's actually a, about a fifty percent increase in area into the curve, just because of the carrier oil that's used there that's going to affect the release pattern from mm. the depot. So if, for instance, imagine someone who's undergoing physician-prescribed um, TRT, and they change from, or, or, or someone who's getting their, their scripted um, uh, testosterone from a particular clinic that compounds it for them, mm -hmm. and they decide, like, well, I'm going to just save myself some money and go with, an underground source or another pharmacy or what they go across the border to Mexico, yeah. whatever it might be. If the carrier oils are changing, that's going to change the effectiveness of the drug. Yeah. The half-lives were different. And here's an interesting one too, because the, the tea seed oil had about a 50% area into the curve. So that's more action of the drug. But the half-life of the castor oil was 34 days versus 22 days for the tea the tea seed oil. And that's, you've got a lower, for castor oil, you've got a lower overall area under the curve, smaller. And that meant, meant that it, it changes, it has a smaller peak and changes relatively more to where it's halfway gone, basically, the half-life. 
So you think, well, that's longer acting. It's like, well, if you look at those two plots, and Scott, you can see this. Anyone watching this on YouTube can see this. The tea seed oil has higher blood levels after the first, actually, the entire time. Yeah, it does, doesn't until, it? Until you get out, like, does the seven-week point, finally at the eight-week point, there's a difference. So for the first, um, gosh, essentially the entirety of two months, you've got more blood, higher blood levels, in this case, of testosterone from the carrier oil that was the tea seed oil versus the castor. Am I right here that uh, with the, so it's the tea seed oil, first of all, that's the one, that's that's the, the high one, first of all, right? That's the high the, one, yep. Okay, so what I'm seeing is they it, it starts out higher than the castor oil, but then somewhere around maybe like day five, it looks like it it rockets up and blood concentrations, yeah, are, get much higher. There, there's a, there's a, it yeah. really takes off and maintains that through like day 14 before it then mm -hmm. kind of comes back down and follows along just slightly higher than the castor oil. And then at the end, it looks like it does drop off a little bit faster too. But that's, that's at eight weeks. Yeah. The very, afterwards. very end. Would, yeah. Yeah. And there's still that dotted line there is what's considered a normal you going at a level. Okay. Okay. So, so like at the eight week point, they're just dipping down and they're still higher than where they were at the start. These were hypogonadal men okay. in the study. Huh? But here's the thing though. The guys who got the tea seed oil are going to have, I mean, the area under the curve is 50% greater. So that's basically all other things being equal, like getting 50% more drug. It's like getting a 1500 milligram yeah. versus a thousand milligram shot huh. in terms of the area of the curve. And that would be especially noticeable in those first two weeks. When they're, you know, probably at least 21 versus 30. Yeah, 20. It's a, they're about 50% higher for week one and two. And then finally week three, they're, they're coming closer, but there's still a higher amount all the way out to the point where they would then get another injection. Now, I'm not familiar with TC, tea seed oil. Uh, I, I, is, I wonder what the viscosity is of that versus castor oil. I know that... A lot of the UGL people, they've been leaning toward like really thin, as they call it, smooth, you know, shots. Uh, right. And, and that they're going to like a lot of MCT oils, EO, you know, these carriers that are super, super thin. I, I wonder, I'd be curious to know like what the viscosity was between those two oils and does does that have an effect? I, I understand that's not part of the study here, but I'd be interested. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, Castro's very thick. Yeah, that's what I um, thought. And so part of the thing, and I this information is probably there. I'll I'll go and dig and look. I've looked at this; it's been a while now, but I'll go re-dig in there. And you know, sometimes you you find the little little rabbit hole. You know, you happen to find the <laughs> the needle in the haystack. Like ah, oh, there it is, and you go down. But what's going to be important is a, is the viscosity. Mm -hmm. So like a, a if an oil is very fluid, of course, it's going to generally just leave the depot site in of itself, and with it, it's going to carry. Um, as the carrier oil, it's going to carry the drug too, and it's going to free it. Whereas a really viscous oil, like in castor is known for that. It's going to stay there um, more and form a lump, be in that area for longer, just as an oil depot would. That's kind of the idea. Hmm. So there's that, but there's also the extent to which the fatty acids um, in that carrier oil are holding 
and forming the bonds, the lipophilic bonds that they do with the esterified fatty acid or whatever is esterified to the molecule. So there's, there's, a, there's a lipophilicity. Fats attract fats. Water attracts water. Fats are hydrophobic. Water is lipophobic. Fats are lipophilic. They like one another. So the fats are pulled to one another. Hmm. And the, the type of fatty acids and fats in the carrier oil are going to alter both the viscosity as well as the extent to which they interact with that esterified fatty acid or esterified fatty molecule. Hmm. Um, so that's going to – and there may be some differences there. Viscosity may not – I don't know this for sure. This could be easily answered. This It's going to depend on what com- compounds you have and um, – that attraction to the fatty acid in there and the viscosity is going to, is going to change things too. So there's at least two factors there that Hmm. could be at work simultaneously. Okay. So, but anyway, like substantial difference just with the carrier oil. Yeah. So that's worth, I mean, I don't know, a smart, like you don't, it's not like an open market where you have like, you know, um, competition, but you know, a smart compounder, a smart seller of such substances yeah. You know, might dig in and do, you know, I, ha- I use the carrier oil that gives you the highest area under the curve, the greatest mm. bang for your buck. Sure. That's what I was much, too. Yeah. How much substance you're using. It's going to be cheaper that way because the active, you're using less of the active ingredient potentially, or at least you can sell more potentially because you've got greater impact from a given amount of the active steroid that you got in your, in your product. Yeah. So that's big. So you imagine if someone's like, you know, got different sources and you hear people all the time, like changing sources and running into issues, some of it's sterility things, that kind of stuff, but things will change. Um, and it may not even be that a certain kind of, or a certain brand or a certain source is under, sor- is under um, uh, dosed per se. It may be a function of the carrier oil. Yeah, you know? that's what I was thinking. Stone or- stuff is great, right? right. Go ahead. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is one guy may have a carrier oil that produces those much higher results. And then you start thinking like, oh, that's much better product as a result. Mm-hmm. huh? Or so, so-and-so's test is great, but their Nandalone sucks, hmm. let's say. So, so that could be a function of the interaction between the carrier oil that they use universally in all their products and the sterified fatty acid for the different anabolic steroids. So appropriate the lipophilicity or the yeah, the lipophilicity of a propanate with a given carrier oil may very very be very different than the lipophilicity of a decanoate with that carrier oil, such that the decanoate doesn't give you a great a whole lot of bang for the buck, whereas the propanate does, hmm. let's say. So there's lots of things, you know, and that I haven't seen maybe there's information that um, you know, is somewhere in like patents and that sort of thing. It's very possible. But it's very po- it seems likely to me that the carrier oil as could be potentially matched with the esterified fatty acid or fatty molecule in a way that gives you the most area of the curve for a given dose. Hmm. So that's another sort of, eh, we don't know, but there's definitely something going on there, at least from these data. Yeah. So let's, um, let's slide us back off to the left there. So we can see what's on the right side. So this is a, this is one from my, um, talk i give this one i and i give the talk why you don't look like a pro yes I've so yeah so this is yeah you have so this is um comparison 
of, uh, of individuals with different genes, a different genotype for the esterase, in particular the uh, phosphodiesterase 7B, which is located in the liver, which cleaves away, the, in this case, the enanthic acid of testosterone enanthate, freeing up the testosterone. And this, these are blood measurements at the begin, before and then two days after a 500 milligram injection. And what you have on the left there are those individuals who are homozygous GG. Those are the two genes they have. So you have two genes for this particular um, enzyme. And those are the, um, the lottery losers, so to speak, because individuals who have one or both A genes for this phosphodiesterase 7B are, on the, are depicted on the right. Hmm. You can see the baseline levels of testosterone, the black bars, dead on the same. There's no difference there. Um, and that would make sense because your, your body isn't making a sterified testosterone. It's just making testosterone. But when you have to metabolize the drug and cleave away that esterified enanthate, the activity of this enzyme also impacts what you end up with in the blood. Hmm. In this case, two days later, which is about when you see the peak with the testosterone enanthate, it actually peaks relatively rapidly. Half-life might be on the order of seven days is what people typically say, but it has a peak early on. Those individuals with the A gene, either one or two of them, have about a 60% greater elevation of testosterone hmm. after a 500 milligram testosterone enanthate shot. No kidding. So that's like, that's like one guy does 500, if, who, has the, who is the lottery loser and the lottery winner gets an extra 60%. Wow. So that's like he gets to do like 800 yeah. Basically, he gets a better he gets a better bang for the buck, higher elevation of his testosterone simply because of that one enzyme that's involved with all of this. Hmm. So the bottom line from all of these is that the pharmacokinetics for these injectable anabolic steroids are a matter of the volume that's that's used. So is it diluted? Is it highly concentrated? The site of injection, you put it in your delt, or your quad or, or your glute or what have your lat, what have you, the carrier oil that's used, and there's possibly some interaction of the carrier oil with the actual esterified fatty acid. So the carrier oil might be best for one drug, but not so good for the other, mm -hmm. another. The genetics that you have for the fatty acid removal, this phosphodiesterase 7B, in, at least in the liver. And then there's all the other things that are involved. So one way in which you can you remove steroids is, is to add a glucose moiety to them, a, a, a glucuronidation is what it's called. There's variations there genetically. There's variations in SHBG levels, which we know serum hormone binding globulin, those bind up, binds up the gear in your system. There's genetics, variation in the genetics for aromatase. That's a function of age and body fat as well. Um, whole bunch of other things. And then the one thing that we don't, I haven't really been able to find any data on is that the half-life um, measurements that you see in the half-life, the studies that are out there that I'm aware of, just take individuals who are essentially naive to steroids. They give them one injection, a singular injection, and they, they follow the elevations and blood level and do the calculations for the max concentration, the half-life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a singular injection. We know that your body adapts to things, yeah. right? 
that's you know your body learns it upregulates the enzymes in term, that are metabolizing xenobiotics things like drugs pollens things that aren't you know normally supposed to be in your body that you wouldn't want that are considered foreigners the esterases absolutely upregulate in response to various things so that half life may change the first versus the fifth the sixth the tenth the twentieth injection down the road yeah. So that's changing, and the extent to which that changes is probably going to vary across individuals too. Hmm. So if you think of all of that, it makes you think, well, can we even predict this stuff? Well, to some degree, we know that you know, decanoate is going to be longer than propionate or acetate. You know, no one's going to really argue that. But how those things change and how much they vary, you versus your buddy, not, this is not to mention the whole aspect of to what extent does the drug actually have an effect on you. This is just... What's going on with the drug as it makes its way en route to the skeletal muscle cells, en route mm. to the androgen receptor. So this is, this is just like the path to the, the front gate of the city can vary tremendously. So it's worth knowing. So if someone's you know, making an assumption like, oh, I should be fine, like I'm doing my testosterone, a lot of doctors do this, doing my testosterone once a week, enanthate's got a half-life of seven days, I should be good to go. And they keep feeling like shit you know, five days after their injection. You know, it could be, they could be quote unquote a rapid metabolizer, which can involve a number of the things that I've mentioned there in the slide. So this is worth knowing. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think at least. And, so let's, it, um, let's go. Yeah. I'm just going to say, and it, it, it explains a lot, you know, I mean, as a coach, I work with a lot of guys that are on TRT. So, and you know, mm -hmm. over the last decade, I mean, I can literally say I've seen you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people that are on TRT and that their, their levels are, they vary so much. One guy right. that does great with a hundred milligrams per week. Another guy that he gets on TRT. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of one guy in particular, I'm sure he's watching or listening to this right now that he, mm -hmm. um, He's at 300. The doctor's got him at 300. And that's just to keep him at like 500 on, on his test levels. It's like what his body requires uh, right. to make that. I love this because it, it we we know that stuff. If you've been in bodybuilding, you recognize that everybody is unique. But to, to have an explanation for it or to see it on paper like this helps a lot. Right. And, you know, who, does he... Does he do his own shots? Are they in his delt or in his glutes? I believe he does glutes. Okay. So, you know, there could be – that's not a bad a bad choice from what we're seeing here. Yeah. But I wonder if, if he went with a different pharmacy with a different carrier oil. Yeah. That might yeah. change something. You never know, you know. Yeah. Um, number of things. So we can um, we can slide us to the, the, the bottom right there. All right. There we go. Throw that up. So this is a little bit – sorry, this is so messy – but um, this is sort of an interesting. This is this is kind of the brain brain candy slide of the slides here. <laughs> okay. Um, so people will look at antigen binding as an indicator, like to what extent is the antigen binding to the antigen receptor? That's kind of like that's where the magic happens, right? That's the whole point is to get the antigens to bind to the antigen receptor, so you can turn on the genes that lead to larger muscles. Essentially, of course, it's doing things throughout the body and and all the tissues that express antigen receptors, which is basically everything. So, but the thing that's interesting about these studies is you have to take a little bit closer look at how they came up, how they, uh, the model that they used to test the different 
antigen receptor binding. And I've got two studies here. We can leave us there, but the study on the right is with just antigen receptors in humans. And the one, and that's where they've, they literally have created a system where they've just got the energy receptors. There's nothing else in the way. There's just a medium there, and they can test the binding in the way that they do that. Whereas on the left, this is the, it's a SARTOC study. It's kind of the classic one that I think a lot of people refer to. I covered up some of the information there. They've got a number of different, they call them competitors. These are all steroids, steroid molecules. Mm-hmm. And they've looked at the relative binding to SHBG, and they also had rabbit muscle. I covered that up for the most part. And, and rat muscle. And rat muscle is, rats kind of like that's your standard lab animal because it's fairly similar to humans. And it's not far off in this case in terms of the antiseptors. A man is not a rat. There's truth to that. Without a doubt, there's some differences there. But in this case, what they tested was rat muscle, which has rat antigen receptors in it. But in this case, it was a homogenous. They take the muscle... And they blend it up so they can have so the the antigen they're testing, the steroid they're testing can bind freely to the antigen receptor, but they also have all the enzymes in that tissue, the ones that are inside the cell and the cytosol, intact. And those mm-hmm. enzymes can act on the antigen in the way that they would in vivo in the act in the actual animal. So as some background, the classic genomic way in which antigens work is. The antigens are they're cholesterol backbone based, testosterone based, so they're lipophilic. They can make their way right through a plasma membrane, which is fatty in nature, into the cell. Hmm. They just kind of float in through the cell, and then um, there's actually two pieces to an antigen receptor. It dimerizes, so the di meaning two two pieces come together with one antigen on it, and then it makes its way um, into the into the nucleus, and alongside with co-activators and transcription factors turns on all those antigen-sensitive genes. So you have all the magic happening there, at least with the classical way that antigens work at the genomic level. So, but en route to, from outside the cell, through the cell, through what's called the cytosol, so the gelatinous stuff inside the cell, there are enzymes there. And in this uh, table on the left, those enzymes are still around. So if you look here, in this case, if you look at that table on the left, number two is DHT, and it has a binding affinity. It's all relativized to sort of for comparison's sake of one. So that's kind of the standard SHBG, uh, DHT binding to SHBG is one. If you look at its binding, this is in the homogenized tissue with those enzymes, the binding of DHT, dihydrotestosterone, the androgenic version of testosterone that's been 5-alpha reduced, that very one, basically has zero binding to the antigen receptor. Yeah. Nothing. And that's because there are enzymes in the cytosol that break it down. In this, in this model, those enzymes are intact, and they can act on and break down the DHT before it has a chance to bind to the antigen receptor. There's nothing there. Now, if you see the little line, I've got the lines going from left to right there. Mm-hmm. I've got in that second line, I've got the, the less than 0.01 circled. And if you follow it over to the, the um, table on the right, the top line there shows DHT, right? Mm-hmm. And the leftmost column there is, is for the binding and its relative binding affinity. So DHT is the standard uh, to the recombinant human antigen receptor. 
Hmm. So on the left, the binding in the rat muscle receptor, when all those enzymes were there, was zilch, nothing, undetectable. You go over to the right where it's just the receptor, no enzymes around to act on the DHT. That's where we have 100% relative binding affinity. That's the standard for binding affinity hmm. is DHT. So it does bind the receptor, but only if it can get to it. And so if you if someone wanted to say, hey, DHT doesn't bind the energy receptor. They could pull the Sartok study up and, you know, show you that, do a, a screen capture of that plot. And it would say, look, nothing, zilcho, zippo. Well, that's true in rat muscle that has those enzymes that break it down. Okay. Obviously, that's not true in the prostate. That's tr- not true in the hair and the skin, the places where people will see secondary side effects yeah. to androgens like DHT. So that's interesting. So I'm going to just kind of skip down. There's some cool. This actually shows um, methyltren. There's actually um, the second line that's connected. I think we can skip that for now. But what I want to get to mainly is uh, we can come back if we need to. To the bottom of the leftmost table, where they have um, there's five different. I've highlighted them five different compounds. Okay. And those compounds in order from 11, 12, 13 on to 15. It's Primo, Winnie, Bball. Halo, and then the technical name that Dave Crossland doesn't like to use, Drawl. <laughs> Drawl, naturally. Yeah. Drawl, Drawl. Yeah, that's the last one. Green Giants, so, A-bombs. Right, exactly. So here we have an issue with, um, and in this case, <laughs> A-bombs, exactly. So these these have basically zero binding affinity to the antigen receptor. And there are no known enzymes that I'm aware of that show that would break down Winnie, Dianabol, Halotestin, Anadrol, Oxymethylone. But they're not binding to that antigen receptor. Hmm. But they work yeah. somehow. And this is what you mentioned on that previous podcast. Because what they've done in a similar system is exposed muscle to those, D-ball and Winstrol in, in particular, and they can, and this is what you're talking about, sort of lighting up the muscle. They have a, they can, they can, um, they use a model where when those antigen responsive genes are activated, you actually also express a photoluminescing molecule that creates literally light. So when the antigen receptor genes are turned on by an antigen like Winstrol or D-ball, you actually literally light up the cell because you also have those photoluminescing molecules produced and you can measure the quantity of light, the photons, the brightness of the light, the lumens of light to get an indicator of the extent to which you've turned on trans activated the antigen receptor genes. So as we know, no one's going to say D-ball and Winstall doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they absolutely utterly for sure work. They turn on those genes, but they don't seem to do it through the classical antigen receptor. So they certainly work but it's not the mechanism by which testosterone would work where it binds the antigen receptor. Yeah. Which is very confusing to me. It is. Well, and I, I've got another, uh, I didn't send this to you. It's like too, it's too complicated, but there's also other ways in which the antigens can work. Um, one of them is another less referenced, less investigated antigen receptor. That isn't that one that makes its way into the nucleus. It's a membrane bound one. You tend to see that in things like neurons. Mm. So, the, the orals in particular think superdrawl, anadrol, 
the ones that have an impact on your brain, your psychological state relatively rapidly, literally people use those as pre-workouts for that purpose. They'll take an Anadrol or a Superdrol or Halo is a prime example that powerlifters would use to try to get amped up. Those act relatively rapidly. That's how plasma membrane receptors work. Once that antigen gets to a plasma membrane receptor, boom, it turns on signaling within the cell and second messengers send out the signal and you can affect the activity of a neuron in the brain really rapidly in that way. So they're activating an antigen receptor because it's receiving an antigen, so therefore it's technically an antigen receptor. It's just not the classical genomic one that we know so much about. So there's a different mechanism of action there with the orals versus the non-orals. So um, that's sort of the bottom line there is that you see binding affinity, and it varies actually. If you look at the, that plot, um, one alpha methyl DHT is a methylated DHT, and that actually has some binding um, to, the, to the alpha, uh, sorry, to the end receptor there. Um, a little bit, it's about one-third that of testosterone. So that one makes its way in. That's not an oral I don't think people are making and using. Um, you'll see... Uh, Number five mm -hmm. is 19 nortestosterone. That's nandrolone. So that one binds in a, just by itself in this rat muscle equally to testosterone, which is just above it. Hmm. About one quarter the amount that um, you see with methyl trienolone, which is the standard. So methyl trienolone is methyl. It's my barolone or methyl tren, basically. Hmm. So let's move our pictures to the left again and some of the bottles so what can we take from this kind of complicated stuff but the binding studies don't necessarily reflect tissue binding um, studies so or what's sorry tissue metabolism what that should say so what's actually going on in the tissue due to the activity of these enzymes is going to vary so the effect of DHT on muscle isn't this dramatic growth process but the effect of DHT on your prostate or your hairline or 5-alpha reduced molecules, depending on the molecule, um, is going to depend on the tissue's activity enzymatically. Muscle breaks down DHT. In this case, that's why you see zero binding there in the rat muscle um, on the leftmost, the Sartok table. The common orals like Winnie and D-ball, they don't bind to the traditional genomic antigen receptor. So, But they still show transactivation at antigen receptive genes. And this is this membrane-based G protein end receptors. So I'm gonna jump one thing, I'll cover another uh, another thing in just a second, but the question is how much do we really know about how these things are working? Like we don't even know whether binding necessarily per se. Mm. Dose responses in terms of binding across the different tissues has not been determined. But what it does seem to suggest, the most of the injectables bind to that antigen receptor, the one we all know and love, that has the effect genomically on the genes, and the orals don't. So it's a very common thing for people to stack an oral with an injectable. Makes sense from a growth, from a growth perspective because you've got different mechanisms that you can couple together, that you can stack on top of one another, as opposed to you know using, add 500 milligrams of test to 500 milligrams of test, use 500 milligrams of test, and then something that acts through another mechanism that's still anabolic, as the orals will tend to be, and that makes more sense because you're you're making use of the activity of different pathways 
to produce the same growth anabolic effect in muscle that you're looking for. Yeah. So it makes sense, but we really don't know that much. Um, one thing I'll add to that I didn't, didn't, it's a whole other slide, but there's high, and I've talked about this here, I think too, there's high variability in the um, binding affinity of the antigen receptor across individuals. There's a couple of different sequences. Um, one of them in particular codes for the uh, glutamine amino acid and the length of that sequence, it can be like eight to like 30 or so amino acids, changes the shape of the antigen receptor. And when the antigen receptor is a different shape, it's kind of like the lock and key hypothesis. The extent to which the antigen will bind to that antigen receptor is going to vary. So we've got the, the lock, so to speak, and if the lock has changed, one key will work better than another key. Um, if a really good lock with high antigen receptor, at least testosterone um, receptor affinity, will work really, really good when the key that's coming in is testosterone. And it would, you think, would work well with other antigens that are like testosterone, like anabolic steroids are. But there's some possibility that for someone with an antigen receptor with a lock that's shaped in one direction, might do better with keys that are better suited to that person's lock, meaning steroids that work differently and better for them versus someone else. Some seem to work universally. If you can't grow on, you know, DECA and D-ball, then, you know, might as well give up, as they say. You know, Dan Duchesne supposedly said that for the first time. Did he? But some people find, yeah, I believe that's the, where that, you know, supposedly, that's where I've always heard is that he was the person who kind of said that. But some people do really well with certain antigens and others don't. Yeah. And there's reasons for that. There's the unknown, like what's actually going on in terms of the pharmacodynamics, what the drug is doing in the body. And that's going to vary um, because we don't even sure which antigen receptor it's binding to necessarily. So how it's going about those things, all the other aspects of the genetics, including the antigen receptor itself are is highly variable. And that's just the classic genomic antigen receptor. There's going to be variations probably with the membrane-bound one as well. So if you're ever wondering why there's so many opinions on which gear works best and how much you need and what have you, it's because of this in part, like the pharmacodynamics, which in, in looking, think of antigen receptors and antigen receptor binding, and the previous slide, which is the pharmacokinetics. So thinking of all those possibilities, not to mention someone's lifestyle, their training, their food and everything else, but just the drug-related stuff. Imagine someone who won the lottery. They've got a really highly antigen, high antigen receptor affinity for antigens. So they're getting good binding, good transactivation. That's true for both the membrane-bound and the genomic classical nuclear receptor. They've got the right enzymes for producing the high area into the curve for uh, stripping that, that esterified fatty acids. So they, they, they've got the the A genes for the phosphodiesterase 7B. They happen to use the right carrier oil and they inject in the right site for them. They got all those things lined up. They're gonna be, they're gonna do pretty dang well. They're gonna blow up. Take someone else with poor genetics, poor choice of injection, carrier site, blah, blah, blah. That person could be almost a non-responder, relatively speaking. Sure. So this are some reasons why, kind of a brain candy thing, these are some reasons why things can vary for individuals. Let's, um, let's hop ahead to the next one. So I'll try to, this is growth hormone. 
very controversial to some degree. Some people think it's the it's the nectar of the gods, and then others are like yeah. So um, we're going to touch on some of those things, just just to try to help people understand why it might be that some do better than others. So on the right, I've got a plot there. It's the somatomedin hypothesis. So this is the basis for the reason why a lot of guys like to look to their IGF-1 levels, excuse me, when they're using GH. So the way in which it's thought that GH, in part at least, mediates growth is that it is a somatomedin. In fact, it used to be called somatomedin C before they termed it growth hormone. Because one major way in which growth hormone exerts its effects on growth and its anabolic activities is by causing the release of IGF-1 in the liver. So that's what you see in the plot there, the pituitary gland releasing growth hormone, and then it stimulates the liver to produce IGF-1. Then the IGF-1 goes about uh, its business in the body. Bind, there's numerous binding proteins, sort of very complicated system. GH binds to bone directly. There are GH receptors there. The idea that GH has a direct effect on skeletal muscle, it does seem to enhance protein synthesis. Um, it doesn't, there's not a lot of strong evidence, at least in the research, that it's some giant mass builder. Mm -hmm. Talked about reasons, things with GH and you know how it may help people gain because they've got greater fat, uh, fat loss with it or they've got an effect on fat metabolism, which allows them to eat more and possibly use that energy to grow from. But as far as GH, a GH receptor where GH would bind and do things directly, the skeletal muscle, that's a pretty iffy proposition. Hmm. So only a couple studies that have demonstrated um, direct effect on skeletal muscle per se that suggest that there is a GH receptor there. And only one that I can find, there might be a couple others, of many where they've not been able to actually isolate a growth hormone receptor hmm. in skeletal muscle. Just not there for the most part. So it's doing indirect things in terms of fat metabolism and IGF-1, I think, which are probably bringing about its effect. So that means there's lots of potential for variability in intermediates. For instance, if you're using growth hormone, everything else is the same, you'll get an elevation in IGF-1. But if you're dieting down, you would expect IGF-1 to get low because IGF-1 is a relative marker of nutritional status. If you're hypocaloric in a caloric deficit, your IGF-1 is going to go down. Growth hormone might not be enough to bring that up to where it's elevated outside of normal ranges, which is what people are looking for to know if they have legitimate growth hormone. And the extent to which that happens varies. So just a real quick, this is no, there's not a particular study here, just some real quick Ideas about growth hormone. I'll try to move through this quickly. There's a good bit of information there. If you could slide us maybe to the upper right. Okay. That would be best, I think. Yeah. So actually there's two major growth hormone isoforms. There's a little bit bigger one that's 22 kilodaltons in size. That's the one that you'll, you'll get if you're buying pharmaceutical growth hormone. There's another one that's a little bit smaller. They're actually growth there are dimers, like two growth hormone pieces that you'll find in the blood, as well as fragments, all of which can have activity. Hmm. So we're just using one of the, the pluri, the numerous different forms of growth hormone. There are at least two different growth hormone binding protein versions. 
with different affinity for those. That's another source of variability. In fact, the gene that codes for the growth hormone receptor is also used to code the proteins for the growth hormone binding protein, both of which, of course, bind growth hormone when it's received by the receptor or bound to the binding protein. There's one variation in that growth hormone binding protein that seems to be a better one to have. It confers better growth in dwarfs when they give them growth hormone. And it also means that in people with acromegaly who produce too much growth hormone, they have better glucose tolerance. They have a lower BMI, so they're not as, they tend to be leaner. Generally speaking, that's what the BMI would suggest, and their insulin levels are low. That growth hormone receptor gene doesn't seem to affect, affect adult growth in individuals. But in people that have excess or have be administered growth hormone, that's the better growth hormone receptor to have. Growth hormone antibodies form, highly variable. In some studies, it's none when they looked at it. In other studies, up to 60% of mm. individuals given that growth hormone produced that. Wow. That table that's just below where you're sitting right now shows uh, it's from that Rougeau et al. 1991, and they looked at a number of different studies. The leftmost column shows the number of individuals out of the total subjects that they studied and the number of individuals, individuals that had produced antibodies to genotropin, somatrem, humatrope, Novo Nordisk, et cetera, et cetera. And so those bottom three studies, nobody produced antibodies. Hmm. In the top three, a um, number of people did. One of the studies was 10 out of 46 individuals. It's higher than even in other studies. How long those antibodies stay around also varies. So the problem with an antibody is that that's your immune system way of targeting and binding up a potential um, hazardous uh, molecule. It's a xenobiotic. It's not something that's good. So antibodies would bind to the protein, this growth hormone, because so it could be targeted by your immune system for destruction, get it out of here. And of course, it doesn't work then. The growth hormone can't bind to its receptor and do its business. So some people produce higher antibodies than others. And that could render their growth hormone useless. So that's a reason why growth hormone, if you're someone with an immune system that is sensitive for whatever reason to the growth hormone that you use, which seems to vary according to the different brands, even the pharmaceutical ones, mm -hmm. you're going to negate that growth hormone because you're producing antibodies to it. Your immune system's taking it out of the mix. It's basically undoing the injected growth hormone. So that's not to mention what can happen, of course, with the products. So... Obviously, black market products can be underdosed. That can be a possibility. And the quality can be an issue. So the growth hormone is generally produced. with. It's, they're not pulling this from, from cadavers anymore. I think that's illegal, actually. Um, Jakob Kreutzfeldt disease was the issue people would get, prion-based disease, from doing that. That was sort of sneaking into those products. So they use recombinant DNA technology, which is a pretty fragile technology. It has to be you know, done in somewhat controlled. It's very commonplace now. But if someone's doing this in a factory where they're just banging out as much stuff as they can, you could be producing growth hormone molecules that aren't completely up to snuff. In fact, you could produce what you think is equivalent to the human growth hormone, what's off by one amino acid. Let's say, let's say you just have a certain percentage that's off by one or two amino acids or a number of fragments in there. And this is the, some of the black market people are actually measuring this and reporting their products, hmm. how many broken growth hormone molecules you have. So you can have a, a poorly constructed, a malconstructed or incomplete. And guess what happens? You put something that's 
kind of a fake version of growth hormone, a not real, not matching to your endogenous growth hormone, a good immune system says, eh, that's not what we want. Yeah. And it targets it, produces antibodies. Or it could be that with that wrong, one wrong missing amino acid or X percentage of your growth hormone that isn't um, complete, the complete molecule, those fragments are completely inactive or that malformed growth hormone is completely inactive. It's a faulty growth hormone molecule. So your immune system picks up on that. And guess what? If the immune system happens to find something in that faulty growth hormone that is the same as in a regular growth hormone, it's going to probably start producing antibodies to your own growth hormone too. Mm. That's a possibility. That's right. Man. So then now you've really screwed yourself. You've, you've injected a, a, a screwed up growth hormone that sensitizes your immune system to your own growth hormone as well. And you become growth hormone deficient, at least until, you know, some point in time when maybe those antibodies are gone. That's a possibility, theoretically, at least. Yeah. So storage can be an issue if you get something from overseas and it, you know, sits, you know, who in customs or what have you for a month. You can have oxidation, deamination, potentially cleavage. So the protein could break down. The, um, you can have the amino acids can deamidate so they can lose part of their, their nitrogen-containing um, of the part of the molecule, or they can oxidize. So those are going to change the shape of the growth, growth hormone trigger the immune system or just mean that it doesn't fit well with the growth hormone receptor, then you're screwed. So those are all possibilities, either genetic or because of the product that can bear, that can change the results that a user would get with growth hormone. So again, information for you to know, um, not that you want to go out and like, just try to sample every growth hormone product you possibly can. <laughs> But there's some there is some roulette here, so to speak. Absolutely, to some degree, yeah. So that can be why it's a lot of the you know the very very common perception that you know farm grade growth hormone is so much better than black market stuff. It makes sense given this to some degree, even though there's possibility of antibody formation even with farm grade. At least you're avoiding those handling and those production issues, hmm. storage and production issues that can create a product that. It, worst case scenario is just relatively ineffective or best case scenario, relatively effective and worst case scenario also triggers your immune system to basically com completely block any growth hormone signaling. Um, if it's doing its job and taking out the growth hormone your body's producing. Yeah. I can't remember so, what, it, it, what brand it was. Dave Crossland had spoke to someone uh, who was with a, a manufacturer and they said that to this day in the UK, they have never found growth hormone that was produced from their facility that was on the underground market, that everything they had found like on the underground market were imposters. They were counterfeits, which really? I thought that was interesting. I can't remember which brand it was, but it's, uh, you know, all fakes. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. And that's not to say wow. that there wasn't real growth hormone in it, but that there's big business in not not to try to trick us, but to actually trick pharmacies or to trick hospitals, pharmacies. They're getting oh. that are getting that stuff by the pallet. We're just getting it, you know. Or I shouldn't say we, but people and us as in bodybuilders are getting those products that were, you know, tricking big companies, basically produced mm -hmm. by the mob, you know, or whoever out there. Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, Jordan has talked about, which is really really smart. Um, he had a connection, someone who had the lab, um, lab equipment to do 
at least on the gear, I believe, maybe even on, on GH, to actually measure um, molecular weight, yeah. measure, you know, get an idea of the configuration, the number of, of the purity, just the purity, I think, generally, as well as the number of fragments, fragmentation that you'll see nice. in growth hormone, as well as the gear. Because that, that's the thing, you could even have, let's say, a supplier, this is something that I think Latch talked about that they try to do, um, you know, they do um, the bioassay for growth hormone a lot on that site yeah. where people will go in and they'll do a 10 IU um, growth hormone injection and time their blood work. So it's about three, three, uh, three hours after that injection and look at the, um, the, the growth hormone re- levels in the blood, which mm-hmm. you can do just by ordering that, that, uh, that assay for yourself. But a lot of those sponsors there, a lot of people are selling black market on that site and other places. They have lab results, assay results for their product. Mm-hmm. but who's to know whether they're making those up or not? You know, that's oh, been sure. a point of contention I've seen, right? Sure. So it's, it makes you think, wow, like they're really going the extra mile, but is it an independent third party? Truly? Is yeah. there such a thing, you know, in the black market? <laughs> right. I mean, these are people you don't know. They go by pseudonyms, you know, obviously they're, they're trying to make as much money as possible. And who has the wherewithal? I mean, Jordan went about doing that, but most people are not going to like, you know, I'm going to buy, I don't know, Five hundred dollars worth of growth hormone. I'm going to spend two thousand dollars testing it. True, you know, true. Not going to happen. Yeah, you kind so, of have to rely on, on people. I think rely on communities, and they know, you know, message right. boards know people that they trust. And at the end of the day, though, you are obviously still taking uh, taking the plunge yourself. Yeah, and the thing with growth hormone, just a, uh, it seems there's like the title of the slide was why so controversial. Some people really are highly responsive to it. Yeah. They seem to they seem to see that magical effect where they just sort of recomp with it, and others not. And it's hard to really know how much of which of all this multitude of factors are at play, yeah. whether it's the gear, or whether it's the, sort of the growth hormone, or it's the person, or something in between. It could be good growth hormone that just spent too long sitting in a a hot truck someplace. Yeah, know? right. So, but this is worth worth considering. So, last one. Yep, we're almost there. So here's here's the big here's the big and you know this study I've talked about a multitude of times it's one of my favorites so placebo study that Gideon Ariel did back oh, in yeah. the 1972 so this is the one University of Massachusetts they took the um, athletes who had uh, uh, done the best during a, a competition to see if they would be entered into a study to test the effectiveness of Dianabol so literally steroids have just been um, uh, outlawed in 1970. This was 72 when this was published. So it was about that time. And of course, that in and of itself puts in your mind that, okay, there's a reason why these are illegal now. There's a reason why, you know, they're... By sport? What's that? By sport, do you mean? Uh, le- uh, by law. 70s. I they didn't realize a, that steroids were controlled. made... Oh, I see. So they were controlled prescription. Substance. I gotcha. Yeah. They became a controlled substance. Yep. Were they a controlled so, substance but, or just considered made into pharmaceuticals? Because I thought... It was like uh, the 1991 thing was when they made them a controlled substance. Anabolic Steroid Control Act. I yeah. think I have to go and this is we'll have to ask um, uh, Rick Collins maybe. Okay, because I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to get you uh, get in any trouble yeah. here. We get some YouTube that, people right, that just right. tear you well, apart. <laughs> the Anabolic Steroid right. The Anabolic Steroid Control Act maybe shifted the scheduling that they were in, but they I think became, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, and I don't. But in 1970 there was. It became illegal for anything other than prescription, so maybe gotcha. that was 
that was it basically. Okay. But the point of that is that they were they were under a scrutiny of the federal government, which creates an allure. Of course, they become a fr- forbidden fruit, and you know people were starting to become aware. You know, the Eastern Bloc athletes have been doing this for a while. You know, this is a big deal. There's something there to be said. And when these athletes, actually the ones that did the best in this sort of pre-training period, um, who won the right to get into the study, um, and you see those data there on the left, I'll get to that in just a second, they brought them into the health center to give them the proper screening, let them know what the potential side effects would be of these highly potent drugs that they were about to get. Mm. All of which, of course, set them up for expecting massive gains, of course. So um, they had this competition, and then the winners went to the testing period. What you see on the left there is this sort of training period, and uh, it's the increase. They didn't put any standard error bars in there, but increase in the in the total um, uh, training loads, like one rep max loads that they got over that first period, and then the bottom and the the bottom two are the, for the squat and the bench. So that was eight weeks, and you can see the the increases there over those first eight weeks. During an off-season period, when you expect that gains are going to come pretty readily, they've just come off their season where they weren't doing much weight training. Now they get back in the gym and trying to make gains. These are the motivated ones. And then they took him to the health center, told him, here comes the goodies, gave him the placebo, no gear at all. And during that period of time, you see the plots on the right, the placebo period, which is what they thought was the drug. And the rate of gains was like two to three times just in five weeks the rate of gains was two or three times and there was a five week period wow. when they were getting a placebo. That's when you expect that their gains would have been temper- tapering off. This is just strength. They weren't measuring body composition here. But if you presume that the strength eventually is going to carry over the training stimulus is going to carry over to, to muscle gains. There's obviously ac- applicability here. So this was just because they fully believe that this was the case. If you can slide off us off to the left, there we go. Cool. Um, this is my favorite placebo study because they literally something about thinking that they're on the steroids brought about greater gains substantially. Literally they made more gains during that five week period than the previous eight week period. So just a little more than half as long. And the rate of gains was two to three times greater. Yes. You had a question? No. Oh, I thought I heard you about to say something. So, the bit, bottom point here is if you think you're on the goods, you might as well have them. Hmm. You might as well be, <laughs> right? And there's a large part to that. So um, this all comes down to the expectancies. I mentioned before, they were told of the side effects of the student uh, at student health. They expected the ASS would enhance their performance because of the illegality of them. And real AS can have effects that also create these expectancies. Think back to the Bosn study where I suspected, I guessed, that those college students who were given 600 milligrams of, te- of test probably um, thought it could tell that they were on the gear because their sex drive became outrageous. Hmm. So that creates expectancies, which at least might have carried over to when they went in and did the strength testing. They, little bit, they think they're a little bit superhuman, and they give different efforts because it's affected their brain in some way, shape, or form. Um, there's another study, I, I don't show the data here, but Imaginaris said, Al, I think it was part of a thesis study published in 2000. Um, they put, they basically did the same thing with powerlifters and told them they were getting steroids. And then, and they saw the same effect essentially. And then what they did was they 
revealed the truth to them. By the way, no gear, just kidding. It was fake, sugar pill. And they lost their strength. They literally <laughs> reverted back and the effect um, reversed itself. Yeah. So it dissipated. So once they, once they eliminated that thought that they were on special sauce, the effects of thinking they're on special sauce were gone. Hmm. So belief is a powerful thing. And here's, here's the thing that's kind of hard to, to separate. Like you want to actually believe this stuff. If someone's going to use PEDs, it's to your benefit to believe that you're using them. Yeah. Because just believing that has its own effect in and of itself. That's just the power of your mind. I mean, in this case, I mean, th these are placebo-like effects, or these are steroid-like effects from a placebo. And the thing that is, is uh, worth knowing, of course, is that, one, that's going to potentially blur your ability to tell whether you've got something that's actually working. Mm. If you're sure it is, then it will. So, obviously, you'd rather not spend your money on bunk product, something that's not truly physiologically effective. But gains are gains. Yeah. You know, if it's if you can trick yourself with a two hundred dollar a week or whatever it might be, um, PED use that produces the gains you're seeking, and it's bunk. Well, obviously, there's possibility that you're using something that's creating some physiological harm too. It's a different yeah. substance or what have you, but that's the bottom line. So that's going to intervene with whether or not you can tell if what you're using is real or not. But the other side of this is that before, and this is probably the more, in fact, this is definitely more important than message, messages, is that if you know, if you know because of the placebo effect, if the placebo effects are certainly there, and there's some variability here too, there are a certain number of genes that are predictive of placebo effect, but if you're someone who's amenable to that, then there is something in your mind that you're not harnessing. Yeah. My thought would be yeah. two choices, harness that power of your mind first and foremost before you go to using drugs because we know which one's the easier way out. Mm -hmm. We know which one is likely to be have the carry with it the greatest risk of harm. Mm -hmm. That's the drugs. There's a lot there to be had with just dotting every I, crossing every T, believing in yourself and putting everything into your training, your supplementation, otherwise nutritional supplementation, your food, not your super supplements to maximize all those things and see what you can do without the drugs. That's where it's at, really. Because the, just the mind power can be as impactful as drugs, at least in the short term. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you're not going to get the size of Big Rami right. more than likely without some supplementation. But I think what happens is human nature, we look for the, it makes sense to look for the easiest route to get somewhere. You know, most people are not going to find the hardest route. It's a more difficult route to go without the gear to try to maximize, see what your maximal potential might be. The question is, in my mind, and you know where I stand on this because I harp on this all the time, is that the value of, of, the, of the behavior, the value of the path, the value of the journey, it comes in what you've overcome and learned in doing so, yeah. not necessarily where you end up. So Absolutely. I would much rather be the guy who struggled tooth and nail to put on 15 pounds of muscle over the course of five years and know I earned every single bit of that than be someone who put on 25 pounds of muscle and I trained lackadaisically and I you know, ate kind of whatever, blah, blah, blah. 
there's there's nothing redeeming and valuable in that. That's not a challenge overcome. That's just knowing that if you give pharmaceuticals to your body, you happen to be someone who responds quite well to them. Yeah. But you know, you may actually also be someone who really really likes strawberry ice cream as opposed to chocolate ice cream. That's just you know your proclivity. That's your tendency to like that kind of. That doesn't doesn't mean all that much except maybe you want to eat more strawberry ice cream. Yeah. So just because you grow well from drugs, for your soul, what's the important route to go? Hmm. For like Instagram that. likes, for you know, picking up chicks maybe, or thinking that you got a better chance. A lot of them don't really care about that. Some do, of course. the The drugs are going to be the faster ticket, but for you as a person, which is the better route? And I think maximizing everything. And if this, if PEDs is something you choose to do because you're part of fully actualizing your capacity as a human on this planet, then, you know, I'm not, I'm no one to say, but there's a lot, there's a lot that can be done. And this is what this last slide's about without the gear hmm. and just believing that you just having the belief that the gear brings to people, the placebo effect in this case is, is one of the most powerful tools that are available to people. And I think we just don't realize that. Um, because this placebo effect thing is sort of a nebulous type of deal, but it's all a matter of expecting something to happen. Yeah. And if you believe something, then you expect it to happen. That's what expectancy is. If you believe you're going to get to 200 pounds, 220 pounds, you're going to bench 315, whatever it might be, if you really truly believe that, it, it's going to happen more than likely, barring some unforeseen accident or some you know bizarre circumstance. So belief is a trump card that I think a lot of people may not be able to apply or don't realize that they have available, but it's in, it's in your hand. It's there. If you believe it, you can make a hell of a lot happen that you may not be aware of. So that's my main thought on the whole PED thing is that, you know, that's a last, that's a last Trump card. Yeah. And the more important one is the one that doesn't cause you harm for sure. That's just believing in yourself. I like that. You can possibly do. I think that's a great message. Yeah, I hope so. All right. So we had uh, was that a closing slide there? That's it. Yep. So don't miss parts one and two, like we did um, training and nutrition. Yes. Yeah. Before this, so this is the this is the third whammy in the three part series to celebrate a hundred episodes, hundred first, hundred second episodes together. This was a this was a good one. I hope my brain is any more information. And we do have the our, our Patreon question, but my brain oh, I right. can feel is so saturated right now. Even if I were to use insulin, I couldn't get any more knowledge inside. I'm at like full right. saturation point. Uh, let me see if I can pull this question up though, because right. I know we did have uh, some stuff that came up from uh, here. It is. This is from Daniel. Now I'm not sure where Daniel is from, but he says uh, to forgive him that English is not his his native tongue that said his english seems pretty freaking good to me um mm. he says for scott stevenson my cardiologist wants to put me on a calcium channel blocker i read some conflicting data about whether it does or does not affect strength in the gym some say it does others say it doesn't i would love to hear what scott's opinion is on calcium channel blockers especially in relationship to performance in the gym i'm trying to get my pro card next year so i'm very concerned about this 
he also adds, I have very bad asthma, and I believe that ACE inhibitors are not recommended for people with asthma. And I want to say shout out to him, too, for supporting us on Patreon. Anybody else who wants to uh, to help the shows out, uh, I'll put the link down below. You can check that out. Every five bucks helps to you know pay for stuff like the programs we use and uh, our memberships to SoundCloud and all that stuff. So what do you think here, Scott? Um, listen to your doctor. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on the internet. Oh, um, because there's probably a reason for that. I'm guessing it's a blood pressure thing here. So, um, I'll just address the calcium channel blocker. So what I'm pretty sure what Daniel means by, and he said strength in the gym is not like one rep max strength, which is kind of the definition of strength, the hoity toity exercise science definition of strength. But it will more than likely, it would more than likely um, impact his performance in the gym. The idea of a calcium channel blocker is to impact your heart and your heart's pumping ability in a way that will reduce the blood pressure. Oh, okay. So I won't go into the cardiodynamics of the, of the deal, but um, calcium channels are involved with calcium-induced calcium release and cardiomyocytes. And calcium is what is triggering the actin and myosin to produce the contractions in your heart. So if you're blocking a calcium channel, you're blocking the entry of calcium to bring about that process, essentially. So there's going to be an impact on cardiac performance on your heart. And if you're doing, especially kind of a high volume, short rest interval type of training, without a doubt, you're going to probably see um, some impact on your performance. Hmm. Uh, you just won't be able to get your heart rate as high. You won't be able to pump his blood, your blood in the same way. And that's important. Um, if, if, for, if for nothing more, if it's not, you know, let's say your sets are not particularly long or with short rest intervals, um, you will, uh, you're going to have a change, a change perception of your effort relative to what your heart's doing. So blood flow is important. You need blood flow to, to move um, metabolites out of the muscle cell for recovery purposes. And the, the heart is limiting in terms of blood flow through the entire body. You can produce a lot more blood flow in a given muscle than your heart can support if you were trying to do that in all the muscles of the body. Mm. So your heart's limited. So now you're taking the sort of the limiting factor for blood flow and reducing its capacity with the purpose, I think, of controlling its hypertension. Um, but it's going to probably have some impact there. Now, there are people that train just fine with that. You know, sure. I don't think, you know, I don't imagine, to be honest, um, Unless, I mean, I would imagine he'd be able to train just fine, probably, to make the type of gains he wants to, wants to make. First and foremost is his health. If he's got a high blood pressure, there's all the health ramifications that come with that. Take care of that, you know. That's super important. Um, so listen to the doctor. But that's just a physiologist's perspective on the impact that a calcium channel blocker would have on his performance. Yeah. Um, I don't even know that's ever been studied directly. I haven't looked. Honestly, that one I have not looked, um, but that would make perfect sense. Anything you're doing, like a, they've done a lot with beta blockers, has a, it's a, very similar. So if he wants to dig in the literature, he could go to Google Scholar, scholar.google.com, and put in beta blocker exercise performance, and that will limit your heart rate, max heart rate substantially, and impact performance, especially during aerobic exercise. Mm. So if he's got more of an aerobic type of way of training, high volume, keep it moving, 
um, you know, get a get maintain a pump until the pump is gone type of training style. Or if he's just does like a lot of like badass full body like squat, deadlift, leg press types of training. Yeah. Um, where his heart rate's, you know, close to or equivalent to its what its max is, that's gonna be impacted. So he will uh he would notice it there. So um so yeah, there's that pot there's that issue potentially. But um you also want to live to compete too. So yes. if the doctor's telling you, you know, your blood pressure's out of control, um and talk that over with your doctor. There could be a, that's a very specific question. Mm-hmm. He may be ele- he may have elevated hematocrit, it may be that he's someone who gets high blood pressure, hypertension when he has polycythemia. So, you know, maybe bloodletting phlebotomy would be a good deal for him. We don't know where he lives, where that's a possibility. So, yeah. you know, talk with your doctor about those options. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I had had to use a blood pressure medication at one point when I was mm-hmm. pushing my body weight up and my blood pressure was going up and, um, I had, uh, issues with the first that we tried and, and I expressed to my doctor, like, like I, I said, you know, I don't want this to affect my training. And so she listened to me on that. We tried something. It didn't work. We ended up going to lisinopril, which worked fine for me. And so obviously uh-huh. you guys know I'm not a doctor for sure, but right. I'm just sharing my experience that lisinopril didn't affect me whatsoever. And I think there's a, a dosage factor in there too. Like I did use a low dose of a beta blocker at one point, it helped my my blood pressure just fine, and it didn't interfect. It did, excuse me. It didn't interfere with my ability to do cardio or anything like that. So, uh, right. I, I think it's because it was just a really tiny dose was all I needed. So, you know, I mean, if he did go that route and use a calcium channel blocker, maybe his doctor'd have him on such a small dose that it wouldn't matter anyway. So, if you right. didn't like what you were getting, you know, you would know, right? You would know. You'd be like, man, this just isn't the same anymore. It's not as if you would go on with life and not realize it and just not make gains. You would be able to tell in the gym, you know? Right. Yeah. That, that, that's, you're right. That's a very good point is that he's wondering if, like, maybe there's going to be some invisible impact on his gains he's not aware of. Right. You know, in this right. case, he's going to be able to tell. Yeah. He'd be able to, like, you know, I just can't push it in the gym way I'd like to be able to. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the only way to know is to give it a shot and then go back and see his doctor again. Hopefully that's a possibility. There are some countries and some medical systems where like getting you to see your doctor is like an act of Congress. It's very, very hard. Mm, and yeah. you get in there, you hopefully you get it all done with one, one shot because the next appointment is going to be six months later. Right. Hopefully he's yeah. not in a situation like that, but absolutely. yeah, good luck, man. Um, let, if you do find another route, get back to us, let us know. And that way we can, we can spread the information for similar people, people who may be in similar circumstances to yours. I also want to mention, guys, that, uh, you know, some of the stuff we talked about, a lot of the stuff you can uh, you can find in Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach, Scott's book. By the way, uh, you're good, man. You're good. Jeremy That's Jason slick. competed this weekend. He did his warm up show oh. and uh, he looked fantastic. Oh. Did he? OK, because he wasn't going to do it for a while, but then did they find another location or something? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, okay. I, I feel like I gave him a nudge because his. Uh, he was getting All ready right. for a natural contest uh, here in Michigan. Uh, he he uh, looked incredible. Uh, looks incredible. Uh, the show yeah. got postponed from, you know, we're recording this in April, got postponed to June. And then they said they weren't going to have the pro card in it anymore. So uh, he was going to compete this weekend. 
And I had said, hey, man, you know, although you can't compete at that show, there is an NPC show. So we jumped in right. that and he got to do this test run. He looked fantastic. And he's planning on doing a show. I believe it's in eight weeks from now. Uh, maybe less. No, it's in May. So it's coming up. Um, and that will be in Chicago. He's going to be able to still compete for his natural pro card. Uh, so uh, and, and he did his own diet. He did his own diet. He followed Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach Scott's book uh, for the basically the whole thing all the way through, including the way that he did his, his test carb up, uh, you know, his test peak week and, and now his peak week. And and I'll tell you what, man, he nailed it. He maybe could have been just a tiny bit fuller, I think, but mm -hmm. it was the, so marginal that he was at that like 97 percent point i would say where maybe he could have gotten to 100 if he tried a little harder or maybe he could have messed it up so it's like it right. really was that and i would call that perfect you know what i mean i would call mm -hmm. hitting 97 to 98 99 all if you can hit that every time you're better off than hitting go shooting for 100 percent and then spilling you know so mm -hmm. it was uh if That's you're in cool. great shape like he is glutes are in low back looks crispy everything looked really good on him so congratulations to his package using the book go to byobbcoach.com you can also go to amazon get the hardcover like i have and uh of course check out our sponsor truenutrition.com use our code advices get a nifty shaker cup like i have use their stuff and um you can support the programming that way as well as patreon and uh, of course, check out Scott's training plan, fortitudetraining.net. Scott, happy 102nd sure. episode, man. Yeah, this is fun. I'm glad people are digging these. Me too. Me um, too. We can do maybe short and It takes a lot to put all this together. It takes know, a lot to listen, and... honestly. Like, it, I honestly, man, like three quarters <laughs> yeah. of the way through, my brain was like, I don't know if I can handle anymore. So maybe shorter okay. versions would be good. <laughs> I could digest it all, cool. you know? Yeah. Yeah, my I, my brain like just eats this shit up, and I go all day with this crap. But that's because I've been doing it for so long. You know, I've, I developed a tolerance. But um, if you have any questions, maybe next time we can even do the next. We got we have some questions. I think you compiled. But yes. if people have any questions on these first three, because we haven't done any you know post show Q and A really at all, yeah. except for a question here and there, we can do that. And I can you know we can pull up the slides or whatever to help clarify any things people are confused by. I love that idea. So, guys, yeah. basically that said, comment with your questions, and uh, we will tackle them. For another episode cool. of Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson, I'm Scott McNally. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Scott. Adios.